Well, good evening, everyone. It is good to be here with you in this uh, mildly warm climate uh, here tonight. Uh, it is, uh, it, believe it or not, it was a, it's actually really breezy and kind of uh, cool in here tonight. This morning, it was quite something, uh, but I made it through. I'm alive, and I'm back here tonight to preach the word to you. I am honored to do so. It's great to be at Ocean Grove. I've had a wonderful week. My family's had a wonderful week. Uh, we've gotten some color. We've gotten some time to be on the beach, and we've had a wonderful time, so... The hospitality here has been wonderful. Um, So tonight we are going to be looking at uh, Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. If you have a Bible, you can put a finger there if you'd like. Uh, I'm going to be reading from the ESV, but that doesn't matter. I think you'll get the gist of it if you don't have that translation uh, with you. Uh, One of those uh, sort of rare ideas that I think unites both the, the quasi-religious amongst us and the super-religious amongst us and even the agnostics amongst us is a very simple idea. And the simple idea is this, that when push comes to shove, if there is a God and there is a heaven I'm getting there because my good outweighs my bad. It's the most natural human thought about the way the universe must work. I've, uh, as was mentioned earlier, I planted uh, a church in New York City a little over a year ago. We've got some people from New York here tonight representing uh, to, uh, yeah, to be with us here tonight, yeah. And um, <clears throat> they, are, they are faithful and they are uh, such, uh, I'm so, so happy to be able to minister to them. But uh, in the process of getting this church established, I mean, basically we went there, we didn't have much of anybody, uh, and so what do you do? Well, you gotta, you gotta meet people. So I went out and met people all the time, every day. I'd go out to cafes and just talk to people. And the topic of heaven would come up, uh, whether I met people that were very religious from other religious traditions or met people that were not religious at all, which was many, uh, in many of the cases, the, the, uh, the fact. And yet everybody basically, when you, when, you, when you asked them about heaven, gave that answer. But yeah, if, you're, if I'm gonna go, I'm going because I'm pretty good. It was just the weights on the scale were a little bit uh, heavier for the more religious person as opposed to the non-religious person. The religious person basically said, well, 90% of what you do has to be good and 10% bad. You know, that, they wouldn't give me the percentage, but that was basically the way that they were presenting it. And maybe, you know, the more agnostic person would say, well, you know, 60-40 or something. But, but the basic fact was, as long as my good outweighs the bad, I'm in. Just assume it. And then here comes Jesus with our parable this evening and messes up the whole thing, tipping over the scale. It reads like this, Luke chapter 18, 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, 
adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. If you're like me, chances are you've probably I'm not a fan of the way that this parable is preached oftentimes. And the reason why, I don't mean to pick on my fellow preachers, I've done it before, is I, I have issue with the way that the characters are presented. Oftentimes when the Pharisee in our story, the really religious guy, is presented, to make the point really stand out, preachers tend to portray the Pharisee as extreme and terribly irritating in his proclamations. He is loud and verbose and quite cocky in his tone of voice. He is haughty in his appearance and is made to look as villainous as possible. By the end of their portrayal, I'm surprised that he does not have a mustache and a top hat that he is twirling because he's made to look like so villainous. But in real life, in real life, villains don't show themselves so obviously most of the time. Fact is, for all intents and purposes, the Pharisee before us really does appear to be at least a pretty good guy. He does. Instead of loudly boasting about the, his deeds to the world, as some preachers sort of make it out to be, the fact is he's shown, quote, standing by himself in the temple. Standing by himself. In other words, it appears that the words he mouths are words that he keeps between him and God in prayer. And also notice that he even begins with what sounds like praise. God, I thank you. He's got the right address. As this good guy thinks about his life, he praises God for all of the sinful lifestyles that he doesn't participate in and for the various ways that he's been crushing it, that he's living victoriously. I don't think he looks at them and says, thank you, I'm not like all of these others. I think he's sincere. I think he thinks, thank you, I'm not, I, I see that guy's life and it's a mess. Thank you. Thank you, God, that I'm not like that. Thank you that you spared me from addiction or from adultery. Thank you, God, that I am not like one of them. I think this is a prayer of a man who believes he is very devout. And the truth is, in most aspects of his life, he probably was. He probably made a great neighbor. 
He probably mowed his lawn and kept it edged real nice. He probably paid his taxes on time. Rare dudes that check the box during tax time to give the government just a little more. He's that guy. So you say, well, okay, Eric, what's his problem? Well, to get the answer, we sort of have to read between the lines a little, I think. For starters, it does appear that this guy is super proud of himself. Yes, he does address God, but notice how many times the word I is mentioned. Five times in his short prayer, I, 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 I. The Pharisee is focused on himself and all that he has done. His prayer to God is really more of a facade for praying to himself. Really, he is thanking himself for being different than others. He is doing what we might call today a humble brag. A statement that in fact sounds humble but is really just a secret way of letting the people around him know or letting himself know that he's pretty good. Chances are you've done that yourself or you've heard others do it, the humble brag. I've heard fellow preachers do it. I've done it myself. You know, it, it, it's, it's possible for anybody. Oh, I thank God that since I arrived at this church, we've grown by leaps and bounds. I mean, I'm really praising God for all the programs that I've been able to initiate and for all the new faces. I, I mean, oops, I mean God has brought in. But the biggest problem with the Pharisees' prayer, if we're really going to lock it down, is that He's judging himself compared to other people rather than to God. Our natural tendency is to do just that. I mean, we can all think of people that were better than, right? Be honest. You can think of somebody you're better than. Sure, I'm not perfect, but it's not like I'm as bad as fill in the blank. But once we do that, once we go there, it's a very small leap to move to, therefore, I'm doing okay. And if I'm doing okay, then it's not that far of a leap to, I don't really need God to help me with this thing all that much. Shortly after leaving his office as mayor, Michael Bloomberg was interviewed by the New York Times about his work. and. In his mind, uh, because of all of his work fighting obesity and smoking cessation and gun control, with a grin to the interviewer, he said, quote, I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I am heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. End quote. Well, contrary to what Bloomberg and this Pharisee think, the Bible's pretty, pretty clear that no matter how we stack up compared to other people, no matter how good we may feel we are compared to those around us, that ain't going to cut it. Because the God of heaven and earth doesn't grade on a curve. It isn't 90% good works, 10% bad, and you're in. It isn't even 99% and 1%. It isn't even 99.9% .9 good and 0.01% bad. 
It's all or nothing for the Lord of heaven and earth. But our Pharisee is blinded by that comparison game. His prayer, his prayer would sound quite a bit different if his comparison was to the standards of a holy and just God. But, but yeah, sure. I mean, if you're, if you're looking at a tax collector, which he was apparently, he says, thank you, I'm not like this tax collector. Well, then frankly, it would have been easy in that time for you to compare yourself to that guy. And just as we don't want to sort of make a caricature of the Pharisee, we want to acknowledge that he probably was sincerely saying the prayer he said. We don't want to make a caricature of the tax collector either. We don't want to make him any better than he was. The fact was, he was a bad guy. Uh, Tax collectors were some of the most despised people in all of Jewish life, and there was a good reason for them being despised. The tax collector was a Jew that essentially traded sides and was working for the Roman occupiers rather than with his fellow Jews. They were seen as collaborators with the enemy. They charged extra to their own countrymen and got rich doing so. So hated were the tax collectors in that day that they were sometimes simply referred to as just the sinners. True. So we don't want to whitewash where this tax collector is coming from. He is probably indeed a bad guy that has done wrong and has treated his own people poorly. And yet to the audience of Jesus' surprise, as Jesus so often does, this villain heads to the temple to pray. What happened to make this sinner feel like heading up to the temple? You can be fairly certain it probably wasn't a regular visit for him. It's probably something pretty unique. Yet here he is heading to the temple to fellowship with God when Jesus gives us an interesting detail. He, quote, was standing far off. Did he get to the temple and suddenly feel a wave of conviction that he was just not holy enough to go in? Did he think he wouldn't fit in with the rest of the people that seemed to have it all together in the church that maybe when he went in that the church would see him and would indeed look at him as a sinner and treat him as such that whether outside of the temple or inside the temple he would be treated with the same kind of contempt and the same sort of disdain that he would be treated like the outsider that he had made himself to be by his tax collecting and sin Maybe some of you sitting here tonight have felt like that as you approached a church. Maybe you've walked in or even gotten into the parking lot and then just turned around because you just couldn't imagine yourself with your addiction or your sexuality or your theft or your fill in the blank. We all got issues, folks. Whatever your thing is, it doesn't take much for the accuser's voice to whisper in your ear, you're not allowed there. Maybe that's what's going on with the tax collector. I remember reading a passage out of Philip Yancey's book some years ago 
it just crushed me when I heard it. A woman had come to a counselor and had just confessed in tears and shame. She was a prostitute, and she, was, she had done just horrific, horrific things. And she had detailed some of these horrific things, abuse of her daughter, and just horrible, horrible things. And she was so distraught in such despair and this counselor just didn't know what to do or what to say and so in desperation he just suggested to her he said have you ever thought about maybe going to a church and her response instantly was church I was already feeling terrible about myself why would I go there Maybe the tax collector feels the same way, so ashamed of his actions that he can't even look to heaven. He just stands far off, beating his breast over and over as he encounters a holy God. Well aware of his sin, he has nothing articulate to say. It's the simplest statement you've ever heard God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, in the, in the Greek, the sentence he says, and I wish that, I get why English translators don't often translate it this literally because it's sort of clunky, but, but here's what it actually says in the Greek if you were to parse it out. Oh, God, be pro- propitiated toward me, the sinner. Definite article. There's no comparison for this man to other people. Unlike the Pharisee before him, he sees himself before God as the sinner. And as such, he knows that God must be propitiated towards him. That is, that word is just a fancy word to say that he knows a sacrifice must be made to God to appease God's wrath at his sin. He knows it. He knows he cannot come as he is. It is the only way. This tax collector is hoping from a distance, from afar off, that some way, somehow, he can be brought near to this God so that he can receive mercy. And he's hopeful, just maybe, just maybe, that there is a sacrifice somewhere that will count him worthy enough. And the good news for the tax collector and all of us sinners who sit in here tonight is that God has indeed provided a propitiation for our sins. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, Mark it says about Jesus Christ, He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for get that last part also for the sins of everyone out there who's standing far off too afraid to come in who doesn't feel like they have a place here for them the sins have been bought and paid for at his cross thus Jesus can go on to indeed deliver the shocking conclusion to the story His audience must have just been flabbergasted when he said this. I tell you, 
This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Indeed, the only thing, the only thing that separates the justified and the unjustified, the Christian and the non-Christian, the good guy or the bad guy, is whether they've accepted that propitiation for themselves. Whether they've accepted Christ's righteousness to cover their own unrighteousness or not. Whether they have cried out, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I mentioned at the beginning of my talk tonight that sometimes I get irked by the way the Pharisee is often portrayed. And so while I'm at it, let me tell you what else irks me about the way this story is preached. There's one other thing that usually comes at right about this moment in the sermon as the preacher wraps up. He stands here and he asks you a very simple question. So are you a Pharisee or the tax collector in this story? Now I know what the preacher's doing. And of course any sane person would say, yes, obviously I want to be the humble tax collector. But here's the deal. If we're honest, any one of us on any given day is a mixture of both, aren't we? Sometimes I am utterly humbled by my sin and I'm crying out, God, have mercy on me, the sinner, while at other times, man, I can be a proud, mm. catch me at the wrong time and I'll be looking way down. And this stage makes it easy to look way down. If we're honest, we find ourselves comparing our righteousness to others all the time. Unconsciously, we're doing it. We find it as a way to justify ourselves. As David Zoll, my friend, says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but that hasn't stopped us from comparing distances. So each of us stands or kneels as a combination of the two men in our parable tonight because we are simultaneously saint and sinner in this body until we reach glory where there will be no more sinner. Nevertheless, the solution to the problem is always the same on any given day of your life. Whether we find ourselves becoming too proud of our accomplishments or utterly humbled by our failures, the plea on our lips never should change. It should always be, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. Let me close. A while back I caught a, a wonderful picture of this from a German movie called The Crown Prince. And in the closing scene, the Crown Prince Rudolf has just died and is laid to rest in a casket. Then his body is taken to the royal crypt in Habsburg and, and the tradition in the town was that in order to get the door open to this crypt, and have access to his royal resting place, the priest serving there had to know the person's name that was being buried. So they arrive at the door of the crypt and knocked. The priest on the other end of the door asked, who goes there? Being that Rudolph was royalty, the man in charge of burying Rudolph's body stands there amidst throngs of people. A huge procession through the town goes there and lists off a litany of important titles Rudolph had. 
the Kaiser, the Crown Prince, the Archduke of Austria, ruler of Habsburg, etc., etc. He goes on for 30 seconds or so. When finally he stops, and to the man's surprise, the priest on the other end says through the door, I do not know him. The man knocks again. The priest says, who goes there? This time he just says, it's Rudolf of Habsburg. To which again, the priest replies, I do not know him. Finally, the man knocks again. Who goes there? And the man swallows and simply says, Rudolph, a poor sinner. And at that, the doors are opened to his final resting place. And that is exactly how true rest begins for you as well. It begins, it continues, and it will end by trusting in Jesus as a poor sinner because in him the doors of the kingdom of God swing wide open. Will you bow with me for a word of prayer? Father, forgive me have mercy on me, the sinner. Each and every day, Father, let us remember who we are and who you are. And let us live lives of gratitude for your abundant grace and mercy that never stops flowing to us. Let us live such lives of gratitude that it overflows in loving service to our neighbors all around us. We ask this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.